Good afternoon, City Bible Church. All right, glad you guys are here to worship with us. And as we go into God's Word today, uh, before we get into the message, which will be on Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, um, I want to make a few comments on what Chris was sharing about. He was talking about how uh, the guys went out last night in downtown Long Beach. Uh, as you guys know, I pastored a church in downtown Long Beach for 10 years, and when he was talking about hardened hearts, but God can still reach people. I can completely relate to that. Um, that area of town is a very uh, post-Christian, it's very anti-Christian, very hardened to the gospel, very, very much not just the perversion of God's truth, but the inversion of God's truth down there. It's a very different thing. And um, But we never want to give up hope that God can reach people in our lives or in our city. And I was having dinner last night, uh, me, my Lorraine, and my children we're at um, Bob and Jing's house, and uh, Alan and Amanda and his family were there, and Ronald and uh, Anna were there, uh, Joshua was there, and it was just a great time. They they all cooked us dinner. I I had actually said that uh, they they the meal that they cooked was so good, I would want them to cook for a community dinner here at Cerritos. <laughs> And it, you will be thoroughly impressed. It was one of the best meals I've had in a long time. It was all home cooked. Uh, but as you guys know, uh, um, Amanda got baptized in Easter. Uh, Vincent got baptized. Cor got baptized. And uh, Anna has previously made a first-time profession of faith uh, maybe about two months ago or so. And as we were sitting at the dinner table, Alan expressed that he wants to get baptized, Ronald as well, and Anna. And so uh, it looks like sometime between now and the end of June, we're going to do another baptism service um, at the beach. Yeah, praise God for that. You know what? These people went from... Uh, very little uh, exposure to the church, very little exposure to the gospel, and now they've given their lives to Christ, they're willing to get baptized. But on top of that, uh, I was just thoroughly impressed. We were sitting there at the dinner table. One of them is taking eight online Bible classes right now. Eight. Uh, three of the women are in the are just beginning a 100-day uh, time of prayer for their spouses. And so for the next hundred days, they are praying for their husbands. And um, I was just, yeah, I was like super impressed with that. I, I um, And then it went on. Um, they were taking turns. And these are new believers. They're taking turns leading the Bible studies, the small groups. Uh, one of them is reading the Bible uh, every day. And there was a couple of thoughts that were going through my mind. A few thoughts. Number one was, uh, I got to change my ways here. I mean, you guys are making me look bad as the pastor. I mean, you guys are so on fire. Uh, but number two, I was so thankful for that. Because if you have been, if you're around new believers, uh, they have a fire, they have a hunger, they have an enthusiasm for the faith that is infectious. You look at them, and it's, it's, I liken it to being a parent who has a child growing up, and that child, you know, you look at that child and see how they see life, and you begin to see, oh yeah, life through a child's eyes, and um, it just brings so much life to you, being a parent, in similar ways when you're around new believers, their faith, their zeal for the Lord um, can be compelling to you as a believer and also convicting as well. Um, am I praying over 100 days for Lorraine? No, I have not been. You know, um, am I taking eight Bible? No, I, I haven't been. It doesn't mean that we're all doing that all the time, but it does have something to say with these guys are on fire for the Lord. And... Uh, and it both encourages me and convicts me. Because the last thing I want to do is be looking at them and saying, oh, that's great, that's great for you, but uh, you know, I've I'm, I'm been a Christian a lot longer than you, but I'm just kind of just watching you, right? No, I want to say, uh, I'm going to be moving with you. 
I'm going to be doing, uh, you've called, uh, challenging me for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The other thing it reminded me of is when you're around new believers who have had their lives dramatically changed by Christ, it is also, um, it is also something to think about for us as a church because you don't want to have the most um, uh, zealous, the people who are learning the most in the faith, the people who are newest in the faith, right? If you and I have been a Christian for five, 10, decade after decade, year after year, uh, we want to be setting an example and saying that the longer you have been Christian, not the more lukewarm your faith gets, but the longer you have been Christian, the more mature example you're setting. The longer you have been a Christian, the more daring, sacrificial, generous, um, and holy your life looks. We're not perfect, but uh, I think that that is very important for us to be around people who we are sharing our faith or we are leading to Christ. Amen? And so that is one reason why City Bible Church will always be evangelistic. We will always be doing outreach. Um, I heard someone say the other day about our church that they really like the fact that our church is not a huge church, but is a smaller church. And I understand the sentiment behind that. It's a beautiful thing to have a smaller church where we get to know each other, a sense of family and community, and et cetera, um, get more involved in, et cetera. That's true, but at the same time, as we look at our church and say, it's a beautiful thing that we have where it's at, we never, ever want to look at it and say, but I just want to keep it that way. We always want to be saying, there's always room for one more person. We always want to be saying, who, how did the gospel of Jesus Christ come to me on the way to someone else? And so, uh, very important, that is the example of Jesus, the example of Paul, uh, the apostles, it should be our example as well. So today, in our passage, it's very appropriate, what Chris was sharing, uh, my experience last night, because we're going to look at a passage, an autobiographical passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, that Paul talks about his dramatic turnaround in his life, um, how he went from an unbeliever to a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a man who placed um, his trust in his uh, standing before God, he, he, a man who defined his success in the eyes of the world, defined his success in terms of his spirituality by his accomplishments and how dramatically the Lord changed him to where he said, now I now realize that to know Christ is more important, that what I worked hard for, sacrificed for, lived for uh, is needs nothing to me compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Identifying with his death, his resurrection is more important. And as we look at this passage today, we want to be asking ourselves the following questions. As I'm looking at Paul's 180 degree turn in his life, as I'm looking at Paul and how he used to place his faith and trust in his worldly and religious accomplishments, then he knew Christ. Then he said, now to live is Christ and to die is gain elsewhere. We want to be asking ourselves, okay, that was Paul. What about me? How do I find myself in this passage? I'm not going to be the Apostle Paul, but I need to ask myself today, what am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I willing to die for? How am I defining success in my life? What am I trusting in for spiritual life? These are all the questions that surrounded Paul's conversion. He was trusting in something. He was sacrificing for something. He was willing to die for something that was his old life. He came to know Christ, and that changed his entire perspective. He said, that means nothing, and Christ is everything for me. Can we say that? And if not, where are we in terms of our view on that? So let's look at our passage today in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at these 11 verses in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. 
Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I account everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, as we listen to these words of Paul's dramatic change, um, we are, he um, is in many ways uh, uh, Someone who reminds us of Solomon in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, who uh, devoted his life to the pleasures of the world and realized they were meaningless and that the purpose of life was to fear God and keep his commandments. And for Paul here, uh, he devoted his life to the things of the world. It defined him. It consumed him. And when he found Christ, he realized uh, Christ was the source of life and the purpose of life. And I pray we may find ourselves in that place today, too. We are a people um, who are under constant attack and assault, um, pressure to conform to the world, and to see Christ as an add-on to our lives instead of the center. So would you use this time, Lord, to sanctify us in your word. May your Holy Spirit move us towards Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. Have a seat. So today, we're going to look at Paul. And his testimony, when he was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, uh, we saw his conversion. He uh, went away for a few years. He learned about the faith. He came back and, and started uh, planting churches and doing missionary works, connecting with the apostles. But we really don't know much about um, how he was viewing that time after his conversion. And so, in many ways, this passage is um, a glimpse into what Paul was thinking after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, how he then viewed his past life as a Pharisee and now his life as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so, let's take a look at uh, this passage. We'll just kind of go through these verses together. In verse 1, Paul says, finally, my brothers, you see, we're writing to the Philippian church. This is a church that where he considered brothers and sisters in Christ. This is in modern day Greece in the northern area. This is um, actually, maybe we'll, okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was a church that he started by leading Lydia and a group of women that were meeting by a stream for a prayer meeting to Christ. And... Um, Paul suffered, he was persecuted, he was jailed, he was ultimately had to leave Philippi, but he sent uh, many other people, not the least of which was Timothy, back to check on the Philippian church. So Paul had a very uh, relational connection. This was a church that Paul was proud of. Uh, there's not a lot of critique to the Philippian church in Philippians. And so when he says, uh, I, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. He's speaking as someone who cares and who knows them. Paul is speaking at this point. As you know, he's writing Philippians under house arrest in the Roman Empire, chained to a Roman guard. He's there for two years. He writes the, uh, the what's known as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon during this time. He's ultimately released and then rejailed later and executed. But at this particular time, uh, Paul is under house arrest. And he is saying, rejoice, rejoice. Um, this theme of rejoicing is really the common thread throughout Philippians. 
Up until this point in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has encouraged the Philippians no less than half a dozen times to rejoice in their faith or to have joy in their faith. Uh, He has talked about previously in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 that uh, we should rejoice or have joy in our faith because Christ is proclaimed, because um, Paul is seeing Um, other believers grow in their faith. And so Paul rejoices that his sacrifice has not been in vain. Paul is saying that uh, he wants to rejoice knowing that the Philippians are united of one purpose, one mind, one spirit, Philippians chapter two. And that brings him a sense of joy to know that Uh, he's also praying for the joy of the Philippian church, that they may have joy in their personal walks. And so uh, this is a powerful thing, right? Because Paul is suffering, he's confined, uh, it's a somewhat dark time during his ministry, and yet he has not lost his joy. He has not lost his joy. One of the greatest testimonies that you can have as a Christian is not how prosperous you are as a Christian. Uh, that's a very popular thing to uh, to to uh, to hold up today in, in Christianity. It's a very popular thing for teachers to say, God wants you to prosper. God wants you to live your life to the full. Um, and there are there's an aspect of truth to that, yes. But I'm not convinced that Christians whose lives are in a very um, abundant place, a very comfortable place, a very a place of um, of great, you know, nothing really uh, challenging going on. I'm not convinced that that is actually the best testimony for Christians to have. Um, I I think really where the true sense of your faith comes in is not when you have all these blessings. You're saying, "Oh, thank you, God, thank you for giving me this and that. That's wonderful. We can celebrate in that in your life if that's happening." But I actually think that. Most of life is suffering. Most of life is trial. It is temptation. It is testing. We live in a broken, fallen world full of sin. And so it is the position of the Christian to maintain their joy. Not necessarily to say, oh, I broke my arm. Oh, I'm sick in the hospital. Oh, I had this, you know, diagnosis I wasn't seeing from the doctor. Oh, I just got fired. It's not necessarily to say, oh, how wonderful it is that all these bad things have happened to me, as I see it anyway. But it's more so to say, I see these bad things that are happening to me, whether it's my fault or not, uh, or someone else's, and, but it hasn't stolen my joy, okay? It hasn't stolen my joy, because like Paul, I'm sitting there in the, my, you may, what prison are you in, right? What cell are you in? And Paul's saying, he must have been thinking, but I have given my life to the right thing. And I have given my life to the right person. And I'm looking around at these people at the Philippian church as well as others. And you know what? It was God using me to help them grow in the faith that has transferred them from the dark kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Son in whom there's forgiveness and redemption. That's a great thing to have done with my life. And so even though I'm suffering, um, that, has not, that, that cannot be taken away from me. See, what's difficult is when you're suffering and you're, you're going through the season. And all of a sudden you realize, you know what, but uh, the things that have been taken away from me are the things I was devoting my life to, and now they're gone. But Satan, the flesh, and the devil cannot take away from you the kingdom work that you've been involved in. That is eternal. That is what God rewards you for in eternity. And that is one of the reasons why we hold on to our joy. We hold on to our joy, just like Paul, because Paul knew that even though he's going through difficult circumstances, according to Romans chapter 8, God can make all things work to the good for who? Those who love him, right? I think of Brother Paul here. He went through his own trial of uh, having a heart attack, and here he is three or four weeks later, and um, it doesn't mean that he didn't have moments of deep distress and pain. But I told Paul this the other day is that he 
he has a sense of trust in the Lord. He has a sense of this has not stolen my joy. And that is one of the great, great testimonies of our church uh, during this time and uh, something we can learn from. Um, so he tells this to the Philippian choice, uh, to the church, Philippian church is uh, rejoice. Rejoice, not just the fact that you're alive, not just the fact that you've gone through, but rejoice what? In the Lord. And we rejoice because our lives are based on the Lord. The Lord is at work. We've given our lives to what matters is the work of the Lord. Verse 2 and 3 and following, Paul now gives a warning to the Philippian church. In verse 2 and 3, uh, he, he, say, he says, look, there's dogs out there. There are evil doers out there. These are people who mutilate the flesh. Let's stop there in verse 2. Dogs, evildoers, people who mutilate the flesh. What is he talking about? You would think he's talking about people who murder, rob, uh, people who um, are out to just kill Christians. But he's not talking about them at this point. Dogs, evildoers, people mutilate the flesh, right? These people who just chop off people's arms. Now, what he's talking about here is people who are coming to the Philippian church. These are people called the Judaizers. They're the same group of people that were plaguing the Galatian church in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers, follow along, were a group of Jews who were saying, if you want to be a Christian, it's through the work, your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. You place your faith in that. However, if you truly want to be saved, it is not by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, in the great Reformation Sola statements, it is through placing your trust in Christ plus. You also have to make sure that you are a ceremonial Jew. That's why they're called Judaizers, trying to make you a Jew who's a believer. In other words, you can be a Christian in your belief, but you have to obey the Jewish dietary laws, the Jewish ceremonial laws, and you have to get circumcised if you're a man. Okay? And Paul is he's saying those people are dogs. They're evildoers. These people who mutilate the flesh, that's a reference to circumcision. Now, we may look at that and say, man, that's pretty strong language, Paul. I mean, when was the last time you called a Roman Catholic who was preaching the doctrine of Rome and the Pope a dog, an evildoer, or an Eastern Orthodox would you call them a dog? And no, we'd say, you know what? You know, you, there's enough Jesus there. And there might be there, you know, at some level for many of them to believe, even the pure Catholic doctrine is an anthema. But for Paul, it wasn't. For Paul, it wasn't a small thing. He literally was guarding the gospel. And he believed that anyone who comes to you preaching and saying, you can believe in Christ. But you also have to do all of these legalistic rituals. And if you don't do all these legalistic rituals of human good works, then your faith is not a saving faith. It would literally be like me turning to you and saying the following. Oh, you want to be a Christian? We're glad that you're here at City Bible Church. Um, now you have faith in Jesus Christ. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. You call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. That's great. But... If, um, if you want your faith to be something other than just being a nice person, if you really want to be saved, you really want to know God, then what you have to do is to make sure that you are here at church every Sunday. And you, we're going to check on you if you're reading your Bible at least five days a week for a couple hours a day. We're going to check on you and make sure that you're praying every day. We are going to check your tithing records. Okay. Um, and it's probably a good idea for you not to look down in guilt right now. Um, just kidding. Uh, but I, we, and, and so if I said that to you, what I'd be saying to you is, you know what? Christ is not enough. And it is by what we observe in terms of your service, your sacrifice for the church, 
that will maybe make the difference. Of course, we as a Bible-believing church don't do that, right? Cults do, and we've had people come through our church who are part of cults who are subjected to that kind of Judaizing of their life, and they've been scarred by it. So he says, these people are evildoers, mutilate the flesh. What is he talking about? Circumcision represented of the male organ. It represented two things. One is it was a taking away of the unclean part. Um, Disease happens, bacteria grows in an uncircumcised male organ rather than uh, a circumcised male organ. And so there's a sense that disease and uncleanliness was removed. And secondly, in that process of circumcision, blood was shed, symbolizing that in order for cleansing to happen, just like the blood was shed of animals in the Old Testament for sacrifices, right? that there had to be a shedding of actual blood on you to show that there's a a purification and identification with God and his people. Circumcision. And uh, that's why he says mutilate the flesh in verse 3. But he says, on contrast, for we are the circumcision, but it's a different kind of circumcision, Paul says. We who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. So you have the entire trinity there in verse 3. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God, and Christ. When you become a Christian, it is based upon the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, to remind you, to sanctify you in the ways of Jesus, so that your life can glorify your Father who is in heaven. You belong to God's family. That is your circumcision through faith. And uh, elsewhere in Romans chapter 2, Paul called it the circumcision of the heart. Not physically, even though Paul was circumcised physically. And that's the issue for Christians. When you come to know Jesus, it is literally just like there's a physical circumcision where something kind of that is not supposed to be there, it gets removed. And by blood, when you come to faith, Christ comes into your heart circumcises it, cuts off the, what is dead through his shed blood, and brings you life. And so Paul goes on in verse 4. And he, he's not being prideful or boastful here, but he is saying, I have reason to brag because I have succeeded more than you. Um, if you think that you're more spiritual than I, if you think your resume is greater than I, it's not. And so what is that resume? If you go on to verse 5 and verse 6, he uh, has a sparkling, immaculate uh, list of accomplishments. In verse 5, he says, I've been circumcised the eighth day. In the book of Leviticus, it was the law that all newborn boys are circumcised on the eighth day to show that they are Jewish and identifying with God's people and, um, and with God's family. He goes on to say in verse 5 that he is of the people of Israel, of the pro, uh, tribe of Benjamin. People of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm not a Hellenized Jew. Hellenized Jews were Jews of by lineage, but they, you know, they adopted the, the traditions, the language of, of, of the Greek language and the Roman Empire and so forth. Uh, Paul's saying, no, I actually can trace my lineage back to the one of the original 12 tribes, Benjamin being one of them. Benjamin was one of the most prestigious of the 12 tribes, along with Judah. Um, Benjamin, as a tribe, um, last son of Jacob was Benjamin, who was born. He was actually, uh, Benjamin was born in the promised land before they went back into Egypt and came back. He was uh, the last of Jacob's sons, Benjamin, to be born of Jacob. There is um, a sense with Benjamin that uh, he is... um, I think uh, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Esther, Mordecai, was of the pri- uh, tribe of Benjamin. And so it was very prestigious what Paul is saying. I'm a, I'm a thoroughbred. I'm thoroughly from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I think if you are, have been living in Southern California for some period of time, as I have, um, I, in my view, the two cities in Southern California that have the greatest sense of pride for what tribe they're from are people from Long Beach and people from Pasadena. 
Okay, people from Long Beach, people from Pasadena take great pride that they are from those two cities because they have such a history going back over 100 years. People will wear clothing that says Long Beach and they will think it's cool, especially young people. Um, I grew up in La Palma, not from, far from here, about a square mile city. I've never wanted to wear a shirt that says La Palma and think it's cool. Okay, people from Pasadena, I, I'm a blue blood. My family's been here four generations, Rose Parade, etc. right? Um, Paul saying I'm from Benjamin, and that meant a lot, and I can trace that. Do you know why, by the, by the, uh, um, on the side, do you know why that Jews today no longer say that uh, I am of the tribe of Issachar, of uh, Ephraim, of Naphtali or something? Do you know why Jews don't say that anymore? It's because they can't. It's because when the, the, uh, the temple was destroyed around 70 AD-ish by the Romans, all those records were lost. And so no Jew can really uh, trace their lineage to which tribe they came from. And believe me, the Jews are into tradition. They're into record keeping. They're into history. And so if there's any of those books left, they would still, you know, glory in that. But that's why you don't find modern day Jews being able to do that. He goes on to say in verse five, um, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning what? That Paul, uh, was um, into the traditions. He was into the language. He was into the legalistic uh, rituals of the strictest sense of the Hebrews, which was the Pharisees, which are um, these uh, tr- guardians of these traditions that they wrote to interpret Scripture. And uh, verse 6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As you remember, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first church martyr, um, he, he's stoned to death at the end of chapter 7, and at the beginning of chapter 8 in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, it says, Paul was watching and approving the martyrdom of Stephen, and then Paul was breathing out threats, it says, against the church, and he's wanting to go door to door to take the saints in Jerusalem, to throw them into prison. And it scattered the church through Judea and Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. So that was one of the ways that the Lord scattered the church for evangelism was persecution, was persecution. Persecution led to the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that, that moment when Stephen was martyred and how Paul was largely behind that um, led to the scattering of the church and the evangelization, beginning of that beyond Jerusalem. So uh, Paul was zealous as a persecutor of the church. And now we come to verse 7 and following. And now this is a transition for Paul. As he has now talked about what he reveled in in his past, he now looks at that differently. In verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, he says, whatever gain I had, verse 7, I now count it as loss. I now count it as all that stuff that I, I placed my charge, whatever the gain was, I count it as loss. He goes on to say, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count it as rubbish. I counted in verse 8, I counted as rubbish. That Greek word for the word rubbish is the word that basically translates cow dung, cow poop. Um, that's how uh, he, Paul viewed his former accomplishments. He viewed it as excrement. Remember sitting at a table at a, um, at a conference for um, Christian homeless missions. I'm sitting across the table from a journalist who had award-winning journalist, had all these awards, and now he's the CEO of a, of a mission uh, somewhere like in the Midwest or so. And he said to me, you know, I realized I had lived so much of my life just for the fame, the glory. I thought I, I've got all these awards, plaques, you know, all these recognitions for my great career as a junior, journalist. And now he's the CEO of a Christian homeless mission. And he said to me, but you know, honestly, I'm super, I, I'm just really embarrassed by all that stuff now. You know, I, I'm embarrassed that I, I gave so much of my life to wanting to be recognized, 
to wanting to be at the top of my career. And now as that Christ has taken hold of my heart, um, I look at that. I'm actually, I don't brag about those things. I'm actually more embarrassed because it represents the old me of what I used to value and give my life to. And the same was true for Paul. He said, that stuff that I had as gain, it's loss. I've suffered loss. It's rubbish to me. Verse 9, I, I don't have a righteousness of my own from the law and the, the law that told me to do all those things. He said, I counted as loss. I've suffered the loss of, of all things. All of the things he's talking about previously. Um, when I was, when I was uh, 25, and I, I've shared this before, I graduated from USC, I got an MBA degree, I had uh, a job offer to work as a business consultant for AT&T that would have paid a pretty good amount of money, and um, the only reason why I turned that down was I just, I, and I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, I, I just said that something doesn't feel right about, the, I'm just... I feel like my life is supposed to be about something more than this. And it doesn't mean, obviously, you can't have a regular job. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that um, within the next year, I was in seminary full-time, and I never looked back. Because what I realized at that point in my life is the only two things that last forever are God and people. Now, you could say the word of God, you could say you know Satan and that kind of, I understand that, but that basically is a general way of looking at it. The only two things that last forever God and people. And, and when I came to that realization in my mid-20s, I started to look at all the work that I'd put in, all the money that I had spent, all of those years of schooling, and I said, that's fine. You know, you got to have people working for a society to function. But for me, I said, wait a minute. If the only two things that last forever are God and other people, then I want to align my life around the only two things that are going to last forever. And that led me to ministry. And I never looked back from the time I was uh, the, just turned 26. And, um, but I suffered loss. You know, I was poor for a long time. I, I tell people, if you want to experience poverty, go to seminary. All right? Because uh, there were times when I had just a jar of coins. And that's all the money I had in this world. And I think the last time that happened to me, I was like 28 years old, okay? That's all the money I had in my, this jar of coins. Like, no money in the bank. That's it until I got paid the next time. I'm like 28 in my last year of seminary. I mean, that's, um, but you know what? The Lord always provided. And I want to say that to you. If you're in a difficult place, the Lord always will provide if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So, um, it cost me. But I got something far better in return. And I want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what has your decision to follow Christ cost you? What have you had to suffer loss for, for Christ? What have you had to look at your former life or your life when, you know, you weren't really committed and say, that stuff, that effort, what I gave my life to, that I placed so much pride that I wanted people to know about my life. I counted as loss. It's not gain to me anymore. Christ is gain. The work of Christ is gain. Seeing Christ in other people's life is what is gain. The other stuff in comparison to Christ, it's rubbish. Um, what does it cost you? Sometimes we can look at this and say, oh, it's so bad that I'm suffering and God help me. That's legit. But there's another part of it where you have got to look at your Christian faith. You absolutely should have a testimony where it costs you to follow Jesus Christ. What does it cost you? Your reputation? Friends? Uh, what you own? Uh, what has it cost you? If you don't have a testimony where you can say, that, that thing that the world holds up, that, that thing that I, I was pursuing, I was, no, I, I just chucked it. 
I chucked it. I chucked all that, all that time I spent going this at 25. I chucked it and said, we're going to start over with Christ. Now, maybe for you, it's not that dramatic, right? But what have you chucked for Jesus Christ? And so for Paul, that was, that was uh, it wasn't a lot for him, but um, it was a lot of time and effort of a big chunk of his life, right? And so when he says in verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That phrase, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. When we see this phrase in verse 9, we want to look at that on three different levels. And it's important that you understand this on all three levels, this phrase in verse 9, a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law. First, we want to look at this and understand what Paul, what would what, what it have meant to Paul? Righteousness that comes from the law. Paul would have had in his mind, okay, I thought I was righteous. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness means that I am living my life that is right in God's eyes. I'm living my life that is right in God's eyes through my thoughts, my actions, my motives, my relationships, my thoughts, actions, motives, and relationships are right in God's eyes according to God's law. According to God's law. That's what righteousness is, biblically. And so Paul said, you know, that, that's what I tried to live by, but it doesn't mean anything compared to Christ now. So that's what it would have meant to Paul. Paul was a guy who was saying, I'm, I, I mean, if, if we knew him, right, before he was a Christian, we would have said that guy, that guy is like holier than thou. He's like what we would consider. I mean, how many monks do you know personally? How many nuns do you know personally? Probably none, right? But there is that sense of single focus devotion to the work of spiritual good works that we tend to look at those people and say, oh, holier. Well, we don't know any of those people, do we? We don't personally know them. How many of us know people in our workplace, at our school, through our friends, our relatives? When we come around them, we go, you know what? Your devotion, your self-sacrifice, your asceticism against, uh, you know, withdrawing from the pleasures and temptations of the world are such, to such an extreme degree. Like Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, zeal, all of that Pharisee. We don't know many people like that. Paul was. And so part of the question is to understand, number one, this is who Paul was, but we don't live in first century Palestine. And so for us, the question then becomes, when Paul is saying, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, what does that then look like for us here today? if we really don't know people who are that zealous for righteousness in the law that are non-believers. Um, and I think the second way you need to look at this, and I need to look at this, is to say, well, in our context, in a post-Christian, anti-Christian world, a righteousness that people are pursuing today in the world looks like this. The world that we know, that we're around, that has rejected Christ still wants their own form of righteousness. Let me say it again. The world that has rejected Christ, it doesn't mean that they don't want their own version of righteousness. What, they, what it means is that the world's definition of righteousness is that I want to be pure. I want to feel pure inside. Okay, I just, I want to feel clean. Like I'm, like I'm clean on the inside. I want to I live in such a way that is consistent with uh, human flourishing in my own life, okay? And so if my life flourishes, if your life flourishes, that's righteousness, whatever it is, right? I want to be uh, true to myself. And if I'm true to myself and am able to express who I want to be, 
then that's my definition of righteousness. That's my definition of what is right. Because I don't have Christ to define that for me. And isn't that the culture we live in? Are people defining their own form of righteousness by being true to themselves? By wanting to resurrect and reinvent themselves? I mean, you see this in our culture. How much of the wellness movement uh, will help you have a better relationships, better finances, better health, uh, achieve your dreams? How much of that is just a secular version of pursuing your own righteousness outside of Christ? How much of the social justice movements are simply of, hey, let's get our our, our relationships between races right, between rich and poor right, between how we're looking at gender and all every number of definitions in between. How much of all that whole conversation is simply society's way of saying, we're trying to establish a righteous society outside of God. We're trying to bring our version of what we think is heaven down to earth. How much of the conversation on blockchain technologies is about righteousness? You know, you listen to these people who are part of this entire blockchain conversation, and they will talk like, this is our chance for technological freedom from institutional governmental control for us. We don't have to be these economic slaves anymore. The decentralization of society can now lead to freedom for individuals. How much of that is... Is a pursuit of righteousness. Politics, if we can get the right person elected. Now, politics is so divisive today. Um, Environmentalism, if we can accelerate the move towards the world's adoption of clean energy, is a pursuit of the world's righteousness. And the third way we need to look at this is to understand that when Paul says in verse 9, I no longer have a righteousness of my own. There's actually an aspect of this, and this is not for everyone. It's not for everyone here, but it's for some of us. Um, And I can say this because I'm Asian American, and I've earned the right to say that because of the way I look and the way my last name, so I can talk about my people. Um, There is a very common theme among a lot, not all, but a lot of Asian Americans that basically goes like this. You're a model minority. Okay, And so as a, the pursuit of a model minority, what a lot of Asian Americans value is where did you go to school? You know, how much money do you have? What kind of career do you have? Are you married? Do you have kids? What kind of car do you drive? You know, are you a success on all of these different levels? And then if you can add Christianity on top of that, even better. But I think for a lot of us, what happens, not everyone, is what I've noticed, in the, and it happens in the church too, is you can have a church who uh, people are plagued by this Asian American righteousness mindset of being the model minority. And what happens sometimes in church is that you can have these model minorities in the community of God And because they have succeeded in all of these worldly areas, people can look at them in the church and say, wow, I want to be like you. Wow, you're the type of people we want to hold up. Wow, I want to be around you because you succeed. And and those things can be great. I'm not saying those things are bad things. I have, you know, some of those things in my own life. I'm not saying those are inherently bad. What I'm saying is it becomes bad when... In the church, we can look at those people and say, man, this is the type of person we need to be. Um, the kids are good in music, they're good in sports, they get good grades, etc. Rather than in the church, what happens when you have people who actually have a Christ-like character, who are devoted to the work of God, and they don't have that other stuff of the model minority? And do we look at those people and say, you know what, that's good for you, but I don't want to be like you. I want to be like this person. And if I can add Christianity onto this person, then that's better for me. What's more important here, right? What type of righteousness are we holding up? And I want to be on the side that says, um, I can celebrate those things in your life. I can even enjoy some of those things in my life, but I am not going to evaluate your worth based upon that. 
What I'm looking for is who has the character of Christ. What I'm looking for is who has the devotion to Christ. What I'm looking for is people who care enough to say, I'm going to be about the work of Christ. And whether whatever school you went to, whatever you, know, you look like on the outside is fifth, sixth, tenth, a hundredth, a thousandth priority to me above next compared to Christ. And he says this, and he says in verse 7, for the sake of Christ, this is all what, why he suffered loss, right? Why has he suffered loss? Why? For the sake of Christ, verse 7, verse 8, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, to gain Christ, verse 8, to be found in him, verse 9, to have a righteousness, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Christ. This is why Paul suffered loss. This is why he gave up what he thought was gain to know Christ. This is why Paul said earlier on in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is why Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. No, I no longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Amen and amen to that. And so it was for Christ and knowing him. And so how did Paul know Christ, right? How did Paul know Christ? And so we kind of come to the end, last couple verses here. In verse 10, he says, that, uh, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus, verse 10. And three things, the power of his resurrection that I secondly may share in his sufferings, and thirdly, becoming like him in his death. Verse 10. Power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I think when we read a verse like this, we kind of read it the following way. Verse 10. We say, well, uh, when Paul says that I may know him, well, I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm with you, Paul. I want to know Jesus. You want to know Jesus. Jesus is a great guy, right? He's my friend, right? He, I, I want to know him. So I have no problem with that. I'm, I'm with you, Paul. We're in full agreement here so far. And then we go on and he says, and that I may know the power of his resurrection. Well, I'm with you on that one, Paul. I love that idea. I want to go to heaven. I, I want to be resurrected to new life. I want to know God. I want to know the power of the resurrection in my life that can overcome my worst failings, that can forgive me, that can bring the life of Christ. I'm with you, Paul. I'm down with the power of the resurrection. All things are possible for those who love Christ, right? Um, I've done, I, I can do all things through Christ who, strength, uh, who strengthens me. I'm, I'm with you, Paul. But this is where it becomes difficult. And then Paul says that I may share in his sufferings. I may share in his... Now, notice, Paul is not saying, well, if suffering happens to come my way, or if God, you know, if I have to endure it, okay, I will. No, he is... He has. This is more of a forward, proactive desire of Paul to say, I want, not I will endure, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. That's a mind blower. How many of us can say that? I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Most of the time, we look at suffering and say, no, no, <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't. I'm, th I'm thankful he did for me, but do I want to suffer? No. And, um, or if we are in a season of suffering, maybe we actually kind of, Look at this hopefully, and we say, thank you, because this reminds me, in my season of suffering, Christ suffered, I'm suffering, he can relate to my temptations, my trials, my weaknesses, book of Hebrews. Yeah, I, um, he can relate. He's with me. He will not leave me during this time. Maybe you, bring, you, you, you take hope from this, right? Maybe there you, you have a sense of, my suffering can be redeemed, because it's happening on, uh, and God is with me or, or it's happening for God. 
whatever it is, um, one of the marks of a mature Christian is not just how you maintain your joy in suffering. It is to actually say beyond that, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. The mark of maturity for a lot of us is not how much more theology do we know, although that's one sign of maturity. It is our relationship to suffering. And it's not just did we endure suffering. You know, oftentimes the world endures suffering really well, right? I, uh, this past week I was watching two different uh, uh, profile segments, one on Good Morning America, one on Today Show. I know no one watches these morning shows anymore on network television, but it just kind of came up on my YouTube. And there's an actress named Selma Blair, right? Some of you know her, um, Legally Blonde and, and other shows like that, um, some of these teen horror movies and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, she's coming out with a new book, and it's a book about, and she's, it's, it's really just uh, her talking honestly about her life. She talks about struggles with alcohol. She talks about being abused as a kid. She talks about her um, decades, experience with multiple sclerosis. And uh, I would just, you know, I watch both segments. It's so, uh, uh, you know, engrossing. Here's this woman who just, uh, is just the picture of human grit and perseverance, and I was sitting there watching, I go, man, that's going to inspire a lot of people. That this woman is not only being honest, just being honest, but her perseverance through all of these hardships. Um, that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. Uh, the world has many people, and, and many times, who will suffer better than a lot of Christians. And that shouldn't be the case, but it often is. What the issue here for us as Christians is two things. One, when we do go through stuff, we may not, we may cry more. We may like complain more than the world. That's not the issue. What the issue is, is when you go through suffering, are you still able to hold on to and express your confidence in the Lord that is based on the joy that you have in the Lord's presence in your life? Are you still able to hold on to that confidence or even better give verbal testimony to that amidst the season of suffering? And secondly, um, are we willing to say, I, I want to experience the suffering of Christ? You want to know a dangerous prayer to pray? A lot of times our prayers are just mundane, right? If you want to pray a dangerous prayer, it goes like this. God, I would like to share in the suffering of Christ. I would like to embrace that, Lord. How many of us have the the boldness to do that. You know, that's one of the signs of Christian maturity, though. Is it not? Isn't Paul saying that? That I may share in his sufferings. All right. I'm not quite there. I'm trying to get there. But we have to ask how, how we see that. Um, that I may become like him in his death. Become like him in his death. That less of me, more of, of Christ. I died when I became a Christian. identified with death of Christ. And finally, in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. Um, we will be ra raised to new life. That our life that we look forward to, our citizenship that is in heaven in eternity, we will be raised to new life. If your personal resurrection does not go beyond this, this, this finite world, you're missing the message of the resurrection, which is the resurrection not just to be experienced now, but primarily for eternal life. And so for Paul, as we close, we want to be asking ourselves, like Paul, what am I willing to die for? What am I willing to live for? What am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I trusting in for my salvation? And if your answer is anything other than Christ, then the Lord needs to do a sanctifying work in our lives. And, uh, and until he does, we're not going to break out of the powerless Christianity that so many of us experience. And so um, I pray that for us. I think we'll get there, but um, let's pray together and close right now. Father, as we close in prayer right now, um, and just with every head bowed, you might be here, you guys, and um, you're in a place of suffering. And just come to the Lord Say, Lord, 
may I experience the power of the resurrection in my place of suffering right now. Others of you, you are here and uh, you need to identify with the death of Christ. What is it in my life that I am valuing above the kingdom of God? What is it that is creating death in my spiritual walk? What is it that um, I am valuing to such a degree of a level of accomplishment by the world's standard that I have put that above knowing Christ? What level of recognition, accomplishment, success am I giving my life to that is in reality above Christ right now? And maybe I need to identify with that death of Christ to those things. And so as we come to you, Lord, we pray you cleanse and sanctify our hearts. We pray that we may know this power of the resurrection. We pray that we may be a people, Lord, who know what to count as loss, who know what to give up as gain. For this, and, and we would truly see the surpassing knowledge of Christ as, as the greatest thing for, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll close in prayer.